0: Well, look who has joined us on the Godcast today. We have got uh, Dom Jolly, who is a very famous man, and he's uh, very well known for his uh, TV work and his writing. Uh, Dom uh, is uh, probably more commonly known as an English comedian, travel writer, uh, known as the star of Trigger Happy TV. Uh, Dom was born in Beirut, in Lebanon, to English parents. He speaks French, Arabic, and Czech. And, uh, and it's really, uh, really great for me as a lover of comedy to welcome you to the Godcast. Dom Jolly, hi.
1: Hello, I didn't think I'd be ever doing a Godcast, I'll be honest with
0: you. <laughs> no, well, there we are. So where in the world are we communicating to you from?
1: I am at home in Cheltenham, which just even saying that Cheltenham's a spa town in Gloucestershire that used to be a place where people came back from the colonies to die in, really. Uh, it was God's waiting room, literally. Okay. And uh, when I grew up abroad, my grandmother lived here. So I used to come from all the excitement of civil wars and travelling around the Middle East to this place. And I just think if I ever lived here, I'd kill myself. I couldn't do it. And hello, here I am. <laughs> uh, but Cheltenham's change changed over the years. It's become a lot more hip and it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, and it's less but it really was a kind of retirement home for the for the english uh, empire british empire really
0: so what, what took you there was it was is it
1: well as a sort of convoluted way when i when when i started doing well on telly i was living in london and i thought oh, it was just too much i wanted to get out of london i wanted some anonymity and i looked at the time i was working at the bbc and i looked on a map And it kind of, I thought, right, if I drove straight out the BBC, which is in West London, where do I get to? It's about an hour and a half away. And I ended up renting a place near Sirencester, which is in the Cotswolds, which is a beautiful area. And I kind of thought, I'll only do that for six months and we'll just have a a think. Uh, And actually I ended up, I got two dogs within about a a day and I knew I was never coming back really. And so Mm -hmm. I've lived down here for ages. And then because of that, my kids started going to school around here. And so really I haven't I've sort of stayed in the area because our kids are here. My, po- my boy's got another two years to go, and then possibly I'll go somewhere else. But right, okay. but I like it, it's nice. It's fair yeah, it, it, Yeah.
0: That's fair enough. And um, so yeah. um I have a standard question on, on the godcast because I'm in Burnley and uh, I actually know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Have you ever been to Burnley Dom?
1: I'm not sure I have. <laughs> you um, have <laughs> have I? <laughs> Well, this is terrible because I've, I've just written a new book called Such Miserable Weather, uh, which is a road trip around England. OK. Uh, but to be honest, I went to so many places last year and just before the, the COVID came down that you'll forgive me if I've forgotten some.
0: Well, I only know but that it's because, be, because I, I post on, online that, uh, who I'm interviewing and somebody said, oh, yes, I saw Dom Jolly. He, he performed in Burnley uh, and he was very good. Now, I, I, I don't remember that because I think I would have probably come to see you.
1: Let me just check because I have the
0: cancer poster here.
1: <laughs> this is my, uh, this was my poster for my tour. Ah. In and all of that was gone because of COVID. I feel terrible because I normally am very good at places. So when did I do Burnley? What would the name of the place be?
0: Burnley Mechanics, Dom.
1: Oh, so give me more help now because that's not on the tour.
0: Uh, well, it was a few Did, did you, you did a show before, or was it being completely I made up?
1: I did a show ten years ago. Oh, right. Well, I, yeah. I, do you know what? I don't think I've been to Burnley, otherwise I'd know that. Yeah. I really would. I'm not that bad. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah. this is not a good start. That's <laughs> all right. Me.
0: That's fine. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to know how uh, how you came from Lebanon to the UK. What was the scenario? What was the circumstances?
1: Well, I mean, weirdly, even though I was, I grew up in Lebanon. Uh, both my parents were British English, although my father's side had been in in the Middle East since well, forever, really, because they were originally uh, British consuls in Smyrna, which is Izmir in in Turkey, in Turkey during the Ottoman Empire, and that was when uh, the Ottoman. So it was kind of like Smyrna was almost a bit like a Hong Kong. It was like a sort of free trade zone within the Ottoman right. Empire, and there were foreign merchants living there, and one of my family, the Jollies, were there, and then they moved to Lebanon. It was all sort of, I mean, when when the Ottomans, uh, when the First World War was declared, the Ottomans were obviously allies with the Germans, and some of my family, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, I think, were taken prisoners of war by the Ottomans and kept in a crusader castle on the Turkish-Syrian border while the Armenian Holocaust sort of whirled around them, so it was a pretty exciting thing. And, and actually, when they came out, they were debriefed by the Foreign Office, and I've got an eighty-page document, which I hope will be a book soon. At the moment, it's quite a difficult area to travel to, and they sort of ended up in Lebanon, uh, and they set up a—you a, well, know—I still don't really know what it is, but it's a—it's a shipping agents. I couldn't quite okay. tell you what that is, but it involves in the port and stuff. And so, yeah, so my dad had been there and was born there, and then my mum was in the Foreign Office, and we lived above Beirut. But uh, my dad was sent off to boarding school in England when he was seven, as is the British way. And uh, in those days, he'd only go, he could only come back in the summer because it took so long. He'd go Mm -hmm. by boat. I was a bit luckier because I could fly there. But also the war was going on. Civil war had started. So they sent me off at seven. And so I had this completely schizophrenic life of half my time in this incredibly posh boarding school with current members of the Tory cabinet and Radiohead. And then I'd be back in the holidays, I'd be sitting in a basement being shelled by Syrians and Israelis and Palestinians, pretty much everyone. So it was exciting, but I think it's probably very much affected me. But because you never have another life to compare it with, you don't know how much, you know, people always go, oh, how do you think that affects you? I don't know. I think the one thing it always has done is I think I've always felt an outsider. So in Lebanon, I was always English. And here I was always this weird kid that lived in Beirut and brought back boxes of shrapnel. And so, and I spoke different languages. And I felt, you know, I feel very at home in French, for instance. I'm a different person in French, uh, which is quite an interesting thing when you do languages. So I think I've always been slightly an outsider. And then I was a goth, you know, so we're very moody buggers. So (laughs) I think I've always looked at people. I've loved people watching. That's why I love travel writing. So yeah, Yeah. I don't know if that answered it really. I have no idea.
0: We've got very small similarities there. because I mean, I'm, I'm living in Burnley and I've been here since I was four, but I was born in London and um, was kind of brought up to kind of understand that I was a Londoner. Do you consider, yeah. do you consider yourself uh, English or Lebanese or, or what would you just say?
1: Oh, I'd, I'd never consider myself Lebanese because I just wasn't. I mean, we grew up in such oh. an English family household and watching cricket and I mean, we were just English, but I definitely didn't feel like England was home and certainly when I was at school till at least 20, when I went to university, I kind of, you know, Lebanon was still home and England was this place I felt completely comfortable in, but it wasn't home. And then my parents divorced and I pretty much based in England from then on. So now I've lived more of my life. You know, I've lived 30 of my years. Well, I've lived a lot of my time away from England, actually, but I pretty much home has been England rather than Lebanon for 30 as compared to 20 years. So I've, I feel... English now, yeah. and I've been back to Lebanon recently for a book I did. And it was weird. I felt so at home there, but it was like visiting another, you know, like a foreign country yeah. rather than a place I grew up in.
0: Yeah. And the other connection is um, I was a bit of a goth as well, but you're, you're a, little, Wait. a couple of years older than me. But my I had a friend called Tanya used to crimp my hair and make me listen to Sister Mercy and, and I had leather crimp. trousers. I had,
1: and... I had crimpers. I never understood crimpers. I actually wanted straighteners. One of the problems with goth for me I just like black clothing, really. And I kind of like the hair, but actually a lot of goth music was terrible. Sisters of Mercy, interesting, I quite liked. And then also the world of goth. I actually wanted to do a documentary uh, on goths because I've never seen one. I I was a goth and I'm not really sure when it started. It was about 1982. And you're not sure what bands, you know, people think of goths and like the mission, Sisters of Mercy and The Cure, but also there's Bauhaus, there's all weird stuff. But anyway, I did want to make a film on it called Young, Dumb and Full of Glum, which I thought would be really good. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed, uh, I presume that's David Bowie. I can't quite see. Is that Bowie behind you? on the? Yeah, that's. Yeah.
1: so that's uh, Paul Simenham from The Clash. That's Bowie. And that embarrassingly is me, but that's because my wife right. put it up.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah
0: God, I, uh, I, <laughs> I moved on from Goth to, uh, I've just been a massive Depeche Mode fan and Dave Gone speaks so highly of Dave Bowie, you know.
1: Isn't that odd? I never got into special mode. It's the one band that I kind of I should get into because they are a sort of an obvious roll on. In a way, there's a darkness to them and stuff. But, um, yeah, no, I never did. My, my favourite goth band is Love and Rockets, actually, where they were a spin-off of Bauhaus. Um, right. But anyway, I never thought we'd talk about goth.
0: Well, there we are. <laughs> well, there we are. And um, yeah. so was there um, growing up, was there any religious connections in the family? Were, were the family religious in any yeah. way?
1: Well, we weren't religious, but weirdly, because my dad was a kind of stalwart of the of the English community in Lebanon. Weirdly, he was he had quite a lot to do with the English Church, the Protestant Church that was in Saint George's Bay. So much so that when, and I was christened there, when the first when the Lebanese Civil War started in 1975, all the stained glass windows were removed from the beautiful stained glass windows were removed from the church and taken up to our house above Beirut and buried in a cave, uh, which my dad had made. And they were kept there all the way through. And then there was a sort of ceremony, putting it back. And I think my dad was a a trustee of the church or something. I don't know. So I hate, you know, I wasn't into religion. I wasn't into anything that was organized. And so every Christmas and Easter day was the only time we'd go and I'd have to wear a tie. And there's pictures of me just sulking really badly. And we go down to Beirut and go there. So that was my early religion. And then the second lot was going to school, which was that terrible forced religion where you were sort of told off if you weren't kneeling. And although I really liked the hymns, I loved the hymns. Mm. And the very first school I went to, the Dragon School in Oxford, had it had a dragon book of hymns. But actually at the back, it had some very unreligious hymns. Well, maybe they were religious. They had Bob Dylan blowing in the wind, which was amazing to like to be able to sing that. Yeah. And that, I used to just long... I mean, I loved... Jerusalem and stuff, but a lot of the hymns didn't really do it for me, but we'd had these occasional amazing songs, which some hippie, I think, had probably put in thinking, this is modern religious stuff, but that was great.
0: Yeah, I interviewed, I don't know if you know a guy called Giles Fraser, he's a, he's a writer and a priest, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he, you know, I think it, it, yeah, it was him who said that, you know, the best theologians were the hymn writers, they did have this yeah. ability to connect, uh, you know, and, and move people to tears.
1: It is incredible. I mean, Jerusalem really is. I mean, Jerusalem sort of should be the national anthem. Really, it's such an extraordinary, beautiful, uh, and it, it does sort of fill you with patriotism. And yet, it's 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 a kind of revolutionary tract, you know, going on about satanic mills and stuff. And it, yes, yeah, just the whole thing is so powerful. It's amazing. And yeah. just occasionally, I do love, you know, I love music. And it is there isn't a the thing I love in in church or well, not just churches as well. I went to incredible. Sufi ceremony which we should talk about at some stage, but it's, it's that communal singing feeling is extraordinary. I love that.
0: Well, go on. Tell us about that. Sufi.
1: Well, I did. A, I did a show called Pilgrimage, weirdly, and I walked, uh, which follows pilgrim routes, obviously. Yeah. And the one I did is wasn't really a pilgrimage, but it's called the Sultan's Way. And it was a reverse of where the Ottomans invaded Europe, went up through the Balkans and got to the gates of Vienna. And so I think the Turks thought it'd be a good idea to flip it round and make it a sort of path of peace towards Constantinople or Istanbul. So I didn't do all of it, but I did it from Belgrade to Istanbul. And when we got to Istanbul, uh, we went to, so Sufis are, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but Sufis are sort of slightly mystical version of Islam and they believe in reincarnation. And, And I suppose they're like a beginner's guide to Islam. Like if you, all the great writers, who went off to the Middle East and stuff? They'd all fall in love with Sufism because it was a kind of softer, and it was very—they're incredibly kind and hospitable. But the one thing Sufis have—and I went to this ceremony in a Sufi, I think it's called a temple, which I, I'd never seen before—and it was absolutely the most mind-blowing. It was like the best gig I'd ever been to. It was incredible. Yeah. All oh, these Sufis—they're all. Oh, did you see it? Yes. Yeah,
0: they're
1: all it. dressed. They're all dressed uh, identically around a sort of Sufi priest and they start rocking and the idea is they they're, they're trying they chant they constantly chant and move and they're trying to bring themselves to a sort of state of exaltation and, and that supposedly allows them to get closer to, the, to their god and oh it was the, it was it was incredible like there, there was power like I'd never felt in a room but weirdly that's why I feel odd about religion because it was undoubtedly incredibly moving and important for them and everyone felt great But I have occasionally felt that same feeling at a really good gig. So, you know, whether it was the religious aspect, but I, and they were just the loveliest people and hospitable and fed us and, and, uh, and they were the only slight problems, they were a little bit sexist. They had, uh, you know, women were sort of purred off and stuff, but amazing people.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed that series. I've watched them. There's been, I think there's been two or three, hasn't there now? It's been three, I
1: think. They did the Camino, the first one. Then they did Over the Mountains to Rome, I think.
0: Yeah,
1: and ours was a bit tenuous to be honest, but I love, you know, the places we were, was so, the Balkans are so fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things there. I, I, I was lucky to do a pilgrimage this year to Jerusalem and uh, oh, did I, you? I, I, And my emotions went to levels that I'd not experienced before. But what, uh, Please don't take this in the wrong way, Don, but what strikes me about you on that show particularly was uh, your kind of um, willingness for other people to express whatever they wanted to express. Uh, uh, whether it was religious or not, and you and to me, you seem to just take this very comfortable kind of center ground where uh, you you weren't offended by anybody's faith or unoffended by lack of it, and you just seem to enjoy the experience. Well,
1: I mean, I honestly, uh, I jump at the chance if someone's going to pay me to have an incredible journey, I'm going to do it. But my heart slightly sank when it was pilgrimage because I thought, I, knowing TV people. I thought we were going to get a real extreme Muslim, we were going to get a real Catholic headbanger. Mm. And I thought I'm obviously cast here in the role of agnostic or atheist. I'm not quite sure what I am. And uh, and I just thought I'm gonna get I, I love an argument, so I thought we're gonna go into it. And actually, annoyingly, you know, apart from Edwina Curry, but that wasn't a religious thing, um, they were pretty reasonable, nice people. You know, what I can't bear, I, I you know, I think if anybody's got a faith or something that brings them happiness, it's great. But what I can't stand is when that faith or their beliefs are imposed on other people. You know, it's, it's, a, sort of veg, it's a sort of vegan thing. You know, if you wanna be a vegan, absolutely great, but don't constantly try and make me a vegan. It's the thing I've never understood is if you're really happy with something, that's brilliant. But that sort of missionary zeal, literally, is, yeah. is quite odd to me.
0: I agree, I agree. I mean, uh, people are surprised when I say that I, I would never um, tell somebody they have to believe in Jesus I just wouldn't do it i, I
1: well, it wouldn't work would it I mean I spent all being forced and it put it's me on how I
0: it's not how I came to faith I, and I just wouldn't do that to somebody and um, how when when did you actually do that pilgrimage Dom how long ago was that uh
1: I think it was where are we today I think it'd been about a year and a half ago
0: right and yeah. so I suppose I want to ask is, is it has it had a, a lasting effect on you in any way and if so what or not?
1: Well, well, it did for friendships, because I made incredible friendships with Pauline, uh, who was the other atheist, and she was uh, Mrs. Doyle on Father Ted, and actually, weirdly, with, with Adrian Charles, who I didn't know, but was a, a sort of late convert to Catholicism. And I got on with him brilliantly, and, and we had some amazing discussions about it. But I think slightly, but no, it didn't have any impact on me, apart from the Sufi thing, which was just the thing of such utter beauty. But then... I think I'm luckier than most because I've done so much traveling and I grew up in the Middle East where, you know, I'd hear the call to prayer and we'd have Maronite churches and mm. I've been to Druze ceremonies. So I think I've had a lot of exposure to different religions and I'm used to, you know, Lebanon of all, Lebanon's problem, to be honest. I mean, they'd choose something else to fight over if it wasn't religion, but Lebanon is literally, to me, if you're trying to explain things you've got against religion, it, it's extraordinary. It's like a sort of religion, religious paintball place. I mean, it's everyone's having a go at each other. Yeah. So no, I mean, friendship and travel and, and hospitality. Uh, the thing that really left an effect on me is actually the very interesting bit. One of my favorite places in Europe is Sarajevo. And if you look at that little bit of the Balkans, so Serbia, and going into Bulgaria is extraordinary how you suddenly come into valleys where there's a church on one side and a a, uh, mosque on the other side. And I'm used to that in Beirut, but in in Europe, you don't think about that really. Even the Moors coming into Spain, most of their mosques have been turned into churches and vice versa. Mm -hmm. See, it's rare that you see that there and it is extraordinary. And and I think that brings incredible mixtures and new ideas, but it also sows the seeds Pretty much always for terrible things like the, the Bosnian War and stuff.
0: Yeah, do you think those things get talked enough about, Don? But I mean, I um, I've a my great grandfather who I never knew was uh, displaced from Constantinople, and I've been, really... doing, been doing some family research and uh, got in touch with the long lost cousin and uh, and and I started referring to Constantinople as Istanbul, and it caused quite a lot of um. Oh yeah, upset. Yeah. And, and so I've now got a huge book over on my bookshelf there called the. 30 year genocide and um, it, it's, it's, it's Which very. Is Why was he displaced? Um, because he was, um, he was a, an Orthodox uh, Christian. Oh, and he was booted out. Well, I, I don't know exactly this, but you know, the, the, the Christian uh, community in Constantinople uh, shrunk and shrunk and shrunk up to, and before the second world war. And it, and I mean, it, I'm, I'm learning, well it's very people. similar
1: my my relatives they're in Smyrna and Smyrna was basically greek and in, when ataturk booted the greeks and christians really out of turkey he burned smyrna to the ground and stuff so yeah. we've both been displaced from turkey
0: <laughs> well there we are you know, yeah. I'll, I'll i'll put that on my gravestone <laughs> yeah 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 um, I just I mean I've got so many questions and it's great talking to you but I just want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago you said oh I'm an, I'm an agnostic an so I'm not sure what I am is that still a, a, a journey you're on or do you think it's a journey we're all on as we go through life just trying to work out the the meaning of the potential for a higher power
1: well I I think I don't know to me religion's a bit like therapy I can I can see I can see how it works for some people. I can see, and if it does work for people, you know, great. As long as they're not headbanging it to other people. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. But it, I think it just seems to me that I've always, I'm, I'm too cynical. If I go into therapy and someone asks me a question, I'll, I'll be like, well, why are you, I know why you're asking me that question. I'm, so, I'm trying to analyze it. And to me, it's so obvious how religion came about in the, you know, there's cavemen wandering around and lightning hits and there's something completely frightening, that unexplainable to them. And, and they have no science or whatever to explain it to. And therefore, it's almost for sort of mental stability. They must have said, well, that must be the big man or you know, whatever they called their, their being. And so you can see how it, it allowed you to sort of shoehorn all the unexplained things for that. I think to me, that's how an aspect of religion started. And then, of course, I've got the problem with there are so many religions, you know, I mean, yeah. one of them has got to be wrong or right. I don't know. And I wouldn't mind having religion, but I just think I'm so cynical and I'm not clubbable either. I hate I'm a Groucho, you know, like I won't be a member of anyone that has me as a member. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty lost cause. I think I'd be very <laughs> surprised. I mean I yeah, like the idea I, of like I, two minutes before death just saying I'll join you know.
0: <laughs> yeah I think a lot of people are like that and I and I yeah. I mean I was I was I stepped foot inside a church till I was 40 and and for example the reason that you just you described I, I believe yeah, there was you're, you're
1: you're an Asian child you're a recent convert then.
0: Well I suppose a, yeah um yeah. but I, I always believed in a in a higher power but as you said I just felt I couldn't commit to one and and uh through some extraordinary circumstances, I ended up being ordained, which is just to this day strikes me as incredible. Um, yeah. but but I think I think those questions and 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 you know I hear lots of stories of people just as you described on their deathbed saying, "I'll join," you know, and yeah, I'll join all of them. But yeah, it's, it's perfectly I mean, normal. But uh, but I, I can also
1: see I can also see you know the attractions of a community of a belonging there's a tribal aspect to it the singing is lovely they're often in beautiful buildings there's always been money with churches you know and good proper churches that I consider you know do charitable and good things but of course there's always the terrible flip sides of what you hear from paedophile priests to you know religious wars to yeah. cults you know so I don't know
0: yeah no it's um it's a tough place to work. It's not the best. I mean, it's a wonderful job, but it, you you know you are fighting those things all the time. And,
1: but yeah. I would have thought that you're a bit. I mean, to me again, I would describe as an alcoholic. I think if you're an alcoholic, you know the, the the secret is you can't tell an alcoholic to give up. You know they have to get decide it themselves. So yeah. I would assume you're not you're not wandering around the streets of Burnley with a bell, you know, luring. You're not the Pied Piper bringing people in. So That's people that come, have come a day off. <laughs> yeah. So people that have come to you like we'll already have a sort of interest, won't they? So it's got yeah. to be easier. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah and even uh, something unique about Burnley as well. We do an extraordinary amount of baptisms, but the, these people don't come to church, but there's kind of a, you know, i got to have my kid, but it's it's what we do, you know? And so uh, yeah, yeah. I'm very open-minded to that, to that idea. I just want to talk about comedy, Dom, if we can, this is whizzing by too quick for me because I'm enjoying this very much, but you, uh, you, you, where did your love of comedy emanate from who were your kind of uh, heroes
1: well me becoming a comic was a big surprise I mean really I became one at 28 so I was a late adopter like you to the church Uh, and really my heroes when I was a kid job wise like growing up in Lebanon were like foreign correspondents Robert Fisk has just died was my total hero (laughs) diplomats or spies I mean those were the three things that I thought were really exciting and I've kind of been most of them I'm I can't tell you if I've been a spy or not I'd have to shoot you but I've certainly been a foreign correspondent uh and I was a diplomat in Prague weirdly for a year so I did and I'm the most undiplomatic person ever so growing up you know I went to university and I did uh, I did Arabic and politics and I was really interested in that and I, I started working in Westminster as a producer for political stuff I'm a political anorak I love that stuff and it was only by chance that I fell into comedy because I was starting to get bored at ITN and I'd set up people in the background. I was interviewing Paddy Ashdown once and I got some people in the background to turn up as clowns and have a fight. And of course that got on the news because it was like, look what's happened here. And then they realized that it was me setting them up and I got booted out and ended up working for a political comedy show that made me think, oh my God, that's the way in. Mm. But growing up, my comedy, you know my dad had these records of a guy called Shelley Berman who was a Jewish sort of nightclub comedian who actually ended up on Kerber Enthusiasm as Larry's dad a long time later. And that was my first real thing. He used to play these records and it was just amazing. And then then there's a big jump. I mean, all my real comedy came from weird French things like Lucky Luke, Asterix, Tintin even, all those sort of things. And that gave me a much more surreal
0: Mm.
1: type of comedy and a different one from an English one. And I had a nanny, which I don't apologize for, it was my parents and she was from Shropshire, and and she had the driest sense of humour, like really sarcastic, and I think I got a lot from her, and then when I came to England, everything kicked in. I had, I went to school with the son of Dave Allen, Uh, and I remember Dave Allen, Dave Allen used to, you know, a a real taking on the, taking on the the church, and he would come to the school. In fact, that's the first thing I ever remember of thinking, because in the 70s, I went to school in 76, being a comedian was not really a career choice. I mean, there were only there were the two Ronnies and there was, but, but I remember Dave Allen came to the school and he sat in front of us with a glass of whiskey and a fag. And he just talked for an hour and he was just stunning, you know, and I, remember, and I didn't then think I'm going to be a comedian but it did make me think, fucking hell, that's just, it was like watching a rock star turn up.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then, you know, all the things I loved, young ones, not the nine o'clock news, spitting image. did
0: you used used to go to school and recite the words of the young ones because i know i did i used to know pretty much every every, you know even now you know i can remember every
1: every moment of it i mean the thing i remember the very most i think the most perfectly lunatic moment of comedy and that was you know that was new comedy when comedy had shifted you know and it was the new young angry comedy Hmm. But there was that moment when motorhead suddenly appeared in their Ace living room and played Ace of Spades. <laughs> and it was such sort of magnificently weird. And yet it sort of made sense as it was, well. Yeah. It was
0: fantastic. Yeah. I adore, I adore Rick Mail. He's my well, I've got Rick two Mayle. comedy heroes, Rick Mail and Les Dawson, because I'm a Lancashire guy. But but Rick, Rick Mail
1: was have you read the letters, fan letters Rick Mail sent? Uh I often get sent copies of them. And so <laughs> You know, someone would have said, dear Mr. Mail, I'm a massive fan of yours. Uh, would there be any way that I could get an autograph? And he used to write back on the actual letter. So he'd say, dear fucknut or whatever, and he'd scratch out their name. And then he'd go, no, I don't want to give you an autograph, especially because you're Welsh. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm not g- making a good one, but they were hilar- both incredibly rude and something that if you received, you'd think, I'm yeah. never letting go. Himself. Did you know him, Don? Did you meet him uh yeah, i met him once and uh, he was off his face and i think i was as well and i was too nervous to speak to him yeah. it was just as big happy was happening and i met him somewhere in london and i i have a very bad ex you know a bad row of meeting heroes you just think what do you say to it because weirdly growing up i wasn't into comedy like I, and i still don't really watch comedy i'll be honest with you mm-hmm. uh for me music was my thing so i was in a band and you know i, I thought if i was ever going to be anything i was going to be in a band and Unfortunately, I have no musical talent. I could sing, but I can't play anything. Yeah. And comedy. I was obsessed with certain things. Uh, Dennis Penis was a big influence yeah. on me, and uh, you know there were things I liked and I could quote. And Viz, weirdly, was massive for me. Like oh, I mean, Trigger Happy was sort of Viz and The Far Side. If anything, cartoons were more like Gary Larson yeah. and that. And then when Trigger Happy happened, and after I sort of started making comedy, and then was wondering, do I stay in comedy? I find it very difficult to watch now because it's either so good I'm bitter, or it's so bad I'm livid, you know. And so I, I've started to watch almost entirely American comedy. Really, mm. I mean Seinfeld I got into very late, and it's just genius. Yeah. Uh, Kerber Enthusiasm, absolutely love Veep. I think it's just phenomenal. So yeah, it's that sort of stuff. Parks and so, Recreation.
0: You know, I, I I I I don't know if you like talking about Trigger Happy, but it, to me it was just a it was a stroke of genius really, and. Um, it was funny, it was it was intelligent, and what a great soundtrack.
1: Well, to me, it was all about the soundtrack, really. I was more interested in that than the actual comedy. But what's funny is I, I remember getting into Hidden Camera in Lebanon. I saw this video on Lebanese TV, and it was called Funny People, and it was a South African hidden camera show. And this was mid-70s, so it was mid-apartheid. So it was incredibly racist. It was some boa, doing jokes on black people, basically. Yeah. But concept of, you know, he'd hide in a post box and I nicked that one. And uh, and then would say, you know, as people walking past, hey, I'm stuck in here and stuff. And I thought, I love that concept. And then growing up coming here, there was Game for a Laugh. I mean, I loved ca- old Candy Camera, but mm. then the New Candy Camera just ended up more and more being about golf. And then there was Game for a Laugh and Beatles about, and basically this comedy I liked was the lowest rung of comedy it really was where idiots went or it's where frat boys went jackass was frat boy and and hidden camera just seemed to be a sort of if you were smart in comedy you need to go and write screenplays and things Mm. and i just loved hidden camera i just thought this thing is it's an art form and also there's the you know people still ask me who wrote trigger happy well no one wrote it because i've no idea what's going to happen when i speak to someone so it's improvised and that is Mm. the real joy although my idea of hell is whose line is it anyway and yeah, being stuck stuff, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. you know, yeah, so, yeah.
1: But, but really, Trigger Happy was about me trying to make Sam, who I made, who was the cameraman, laugh. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd come in, I'd have no idea what we are going to do, and I'd walk up to someone, and then I was just thinking, I've got to make Sam laugh. So a lot of the rocking camera in Trigger Happy is Sam laughing. Right, you exactly, know, which right, okay. And then when we'd made all this stuff, and we'd filmed and filmed and filmed, and we only could do that because just at that moment in time, it was like punk you didn't have to go into a recording studio you could suddenly buy your own camera which is what we did probably the first camera vx1000 that you could just film your own stuff so we didn't have to pay these expensive crews so sam and i just filmed for a year and learned our craft and then the real joy was we got in the edit and you know i've just always been obsessed with music and i've got a sad music taste in the sense of it's a goth taste you know and and i remember putting some of the songs i put mercury rev holes over these dogs beating themselves up. And originally, that was actually a point to those dogs beating themselves up. It was about everywhere we went, we saw uh, CCTV cameras. So all those sketches would start on a CCTV camera and pan down to these sort of mock execution scenes with dogs. And the idea was who's watching this stuff? But then actually once we got in the edit, we thought, who cares, it's just a weird scene yeah. And people are walking past. And I was putting Jacques Brel on and stuff like that. And when we took it into Channel 4, they just went, you can't put that on this. They literally said, it needs to be cartoon music. I was like, why? Mm. And so I don't know. It, it was kind of just, it, it was, I, I worked every second on it for three years, the two, the two series and two shows. It was a work of love. Sam and I, like from the concept to the filming to the edit, it was our baby and it, and, and, and it was just totally ours. And since then, weirdly, the moment you become successful, everyone gets involved, and you end up making shows by committee that no one likes. It's very weird.
0: Dom, I know what I know. I know I like, and I know I I loved Trigger Happy TV. It was just the best. I adored it. But what what I want to ask is, it made you very famous, didn't Mm. it? What? How did that go down? Was that was that something? You know, you strike me as, like you say, you've got a bit of, you've got a darkness about you. I mean, your room's dark, your clothes are dark, your music to, dark. What did yeah. that, what did that do to you, Dom, you know, getting famous.
1: It was not good for me at all. It's funny, actually, because actually there's a part of fame, you know, I mean, the old cliches, fame is the mask that eats away the face behind and, you know, fame kills you and all that stuff. There's an element of fame as a goth that I really liked because I'm terrible at walking into a room, even though I'm a loudmouth and chatting to you. I'm actually quite shy, oddly. So I don't like walking into a room making polite. Comments. I'm very bad at that. And one of the good things about fame is you walk in and everyone knows who you are, and they, it's sort of they cut out the first two levels of normal conversation. You just suddenly find yourself talking to Jeff Beck about something. You're yeah. like, how did this happen? But I think I've always had a slight. I mean, I know Trigapi was good, and I'm not saying that immodestly, but I, I I did it, and I knew that there was a lot of love in it. But I've always had a slight imposter syndrome to me, anyway. You know, thinking I don't. You're always. To me, show business is full of two people. There's people, someone will come up and tap you on the shoulder and say, come on, you blagged it, now fuck off, basically. And there are people that turn around and go, what are you talking about, I'm a genius. And there are others that go, oh, I had a good run. (laughs) And I've always felt that. I'm always waiting for that to happen. And so when fame happened, what I didn't realize was that it it was kind of like, I felt I'd made the best comedy show I could ever make. And suddenly I had to beat it. And I've always suffered from that with comedy why I kind of always wanted to go off travel writing I want to do something different because I don't think I'll ever make a better show than Sugar Happy it was perfect Mm -hmm. and and also (laughs) I'm over 50 now I can't dress as a squirrel anymore really like realistically so so yeah I think I tried to chase it for a bit you know I thought it was so great and I stopped it when I wanted to stop it as well you know they offered us to do loads more and I said no I just want to leave it was like a perfect album you know and I wanted to leave it and then of course I thought oh you idiot you only get one golden goose like don't throw it away so I'm sure I made lots of mistakes but oh my god I've had an amazing 20 years I mean I've done these just extraordinary things and it opened so many doors for me and it allowed me to start writing but I wouldn't keep writing if I was rubbish they'd have booted me out and I think I'm a good writer but it opened lots of doors for me but also it was terrible for me as well I I just it's a very empty I mean you know I'm so bored of people talking about how boring fame is because there are great and lots of nice things about fame and still today you know Walked down, and some blokes came up and said, Can I shake your hand? Mm. You made me laugh, you know. And I love all that stuff, that's great. But there's something very empty about it when you start chasing it. And I was never interested in the fame aspect of it. I had a really nice balance of fame, I wasn't mega famous, but I was famous enough to enjoy some benefits.
0: But you're pretty famous, Tom. I've got my teenage girls know who you are, and you know, that's. well, that's probably because
1: you know? I did I'm a Celeb,
0: which is even worse,
1: <laughs> <laughs> which I did enjoy doing, I have to say. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know what? It's a very odd thing. And, and there's nothing I, I hate more than hearing some twat talk about how empty fame is. So actually, you know what? Fame, I will go with my normal one, which is I had a very bad time because I had terrible panic attacks and depression. But I probably would have had that if I was an accountant, to be honest. So overall, fame has been brilliant
0: to me. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've been talking about...
1: Is this where we're getting to?
0: Well, no. I, I normally only talk for half an hour, and I realise we're at ten past seven. But okay. I'm enjoying this so much, Dom. But I just, um, I just want to ask you about. Um, it's a, it's a question I like asking people. You know, to be creatively brilliant or, or be at sure. your best, do you have to have some? I don't know. Yeah. That's just not quite right. Yeah,
1: yeah you do. It's. Uh, I've, I've. I think this is so, so part of it. I think there's a balance in creativity, and I think. To access, to access some weird part of your brain that allows you to have some sort of brilliance or interesting creativity, you have to pay by having a dark side, I think, and, mm-hmm. and having some terrible times. And it is a kind of bipolarity, I'm not bipolar, but it's definitely a bipolar thing. I think you can be a very stable, probably quite happy person all the way through, but you're not gonna get those extremes. And the bad extremes are horrible, but the good extremes are amazing. And yeah. I think you have to decide whether you do that or not and a lot of that also depends on your age I mean it's more difficult for me to go extreme in either way now anyway I've got kids I'm you know I live in Cheltenham for God's sake how do to go extreme in Cheltenham and so you know because you do wonder you watch when you grow up you look at people that made this amazing album you loved and then you think well what happened to the second album you know and it's like Caitlin Moran once said it she just said bitch gotta pay rent it sort of is like you end up when you make these first things, you've got no attachments. You can do what you want. And then suddenly everyone gets involved in it. And it's all very complicated. But again, I'm not grumbling. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I just wish I could give that advice. When I started, there was no rule book to hidden camera. There was no, I had no one to look up to, like a stand up, because I wasn't doing stand up and say, oh, don't do that and stuff. And I'd love to be able to help someone. And I do actually, people, even though they're normally terrible, which is really awful, but they approach me on Instagram or whatever. I'm the godfather of hidden camera now. And they uh, and they ask me advice, and I try and help them with it. I don't know whether it's true. We you know whether I can, but yeah.
0: I think it's testament to your work, Dom, that nobody's really been back there and tried to, you know, rip it off. They
1: have, but I think one of the big problems with hidden camera is that uh, it's a very very painstaking thing to do because you're acting with the members of the public, and you can't just do it. And most people cheat in the end; they fake it, and I can smell that on hidden camera shows like it's miles away because it's yeah. easy to do so I don't know it was just a weird thing you know it just was a thing at the right time right place I met Sam I have this weird record collection you know if I'd have planned it it would never have happened and you know maybe it was divine intervention who knows yeah maybe I do have to, have to thank
0: yeah Dom I'm, I'm mindful I've had a lot of your time and I've loved every minute of it I've established that we thought you'd been to Burnley and you haven't
1: <laughs> well I I feel really bad because I'm not insulting Burnley but I'm, I'm, I certainly didn't go to Burnley on this tour which is the one I thought you were talking no. about
0: But I'm sure I have
1: at that. Isn't Alistair Campbell from Burnley?
0: Uh, Yes, he is. Yes.
1: I have been to Burnley and I can't remember why. So that must have been 10 years ago. He's a big Burnley
0: Burnley football club fan. He never
1: stopped talking about Burnley. So I remember getting to Burnley and thinking, oh, oh, that's what Alistair Campbell's always on about. Which is a very weird and probably not what you want your town to be known for. But, you know.
0: Well, every yeah. every time I reference Burnley, Alistair Campbell's name comes up, and I, and there is a lot more to Burnley than Alistair yeah, sure Campbell. But, uh, yeah. but, okay, yeah. So I have
1: been to Burnley, but it was a long time ago on a probably the only other tour I've done when when God it all went so terribly wrong. But that's another story.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Dom, you are you are so honest. You're so you know you're so just say as it is. I love that. I love the fact okay. that we've we've got similar things going on with Bowie yeah, yeah. And, and the Goths and um, I love all that. Yeah, uh, I mean,
1: if I, if I went religious, you'd be my priest. I tell you that you're very relaxed. It's very good.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think if if you get an opportunity for a pilgrimage again, then I would definitely encourage the Holy Land because that is uh, that I've is on a. That. Yeah, I've
1: been there, loved it. I mean, it's extraordinary, and that again is like, it's it's like Istanbul. It's like a supermarket of religions. You see yeah. the guy dragging the big cross around and then you've got the you know hasidic jews and it's incredible
0: and you can see
1: why everyone's decided this one place is most special place what could go wrong
0: (laughs) right dom i'm going to leave it there i'm going to thank you so much thanks for your time and all the best for the future you too and i'll be in burnley soon (laughs) god bless bye
1: see ya
0: Have you gone dumped?